Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. I am so thrilled that audible.com is my new sponsor. They'll be sponsoring this whole week, and they're giving you all a free 30-day trial of Audible, which includes not only their audiobooks, which they're famous for, but also guided wellness now, podcasts, and so many Audible originals. You have to go check it out. I even have my special URL, which is audible.com slash Zibby. How cool is that? So you have to go check it out so that they know that people who are listening are actually listening to this. <laughs> audible.com slash Zibby. And you can even text Z-I-B-B-Y, all lowercase, Zibby, to 500-500 to get your free trial. So go do it now. Um, I don't know about you. I love listening to audiobooks um, when I'm walking my new dogs, who are my former mother-in-laws, when I'm putting away the laundry and doing all that stuff. Um, I love I Eat Men Like Air by Alice Berman. I listened to Where the Light Enters by Jill Biden to prepare for her episode and Jamie Lee Curtis's Letters from Camp. Um, anyway, you should definitely go to Audible and go to audible.com slash Zibby and get your free month of fantastic listening. Thank you. Bill Clegg is a literary agent in New York and the author of the best-selling memoirs Portrait of an Addict as a Young Man and 90 Days. He's also the author of the novels, Did You Ever Have a Family? And now, The End of the Day. He has written for the New York Times, Lapham's Quarterly, New York Magazine, The Guardian, and Harper's Bazaar. He currently lives with his husband and their soon-to-be adopted daughter, who is actually Bill's niece. Welcome, Bill. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. I was just telling you, but just to showcase my Bill Clegg fandom over the years, Portrait of an Addict as a Young Man, which was so amazing. And now I know everything about this period of your life as we were discussing. Did you ever have a family? Which I like, everybody is like, this is the best book ever. Oh my gosh, everybody I talked to. And then the end of the day, which of course has just come out and which is absolutely beautiful. And I was so privileged to have read. So I'm so happy to be here talking to you. <laughs> I'm happy to be here too. Thank you. So let's just talk for a sec first about the end of the day, even though it's not the end of this day, but what inspired you to write this book and what's it about? Why this book and, and like why now in your life? Oh, the easy questions. <laughs> yeah. Just summarize, just all that and then we're good to go. Okay. The end of the day, when I'm writing, I usually, there's usually some other kind of secondary like writing that's going on to the main thing. And it's usually like when I sort of hit a wall, I'll just go to that other thing that doesn't have any booby traps or, or, or problems associated with it. So I kind of am of the go where it's warm philosophy in writing. Like if it gets too kind of tortured or, you know, uncomfortable or just isn't, isn't coming, I'll just, I'll move off and go write something that 
just feels easy and that will be fun. And then usually I'll, then I'll hit a wall there and go back to the problem that I couldn't solve before. And it will seem usually much less difficult to solve. So with the end of the day, one of the central characters is a woman named Jackie, and she actually appears for a moment in Did You Ever Have a Family? And she's the mother of the caterer, who is a minor character at the beginning of of that book, who kind of like tells a story to sort of lay the groundwork of of the scenario of of that novel. And And she appears in the driveway in like a house coat and her porch light is on in the middle of the day and and then she's gone and you never see her again. But when I was writing that book, she just kind of interested me and I was I just sort of kept on coming back to her. And so she was the sort of secondary, I didn't know it at the time, but like I kept on writing her backstory, her childhood, this important friendship she had when she was a kid. And then it became clear that that she and her entourage were not going to be central to did you ever have a family? So, but I just kept on to writing her because she was interesting to me. And then when I finished, did you ever have a family? You know, there were all these pages without really a organizing center to them. And then I heard a story. I overheard a story about somebody from who was in Lakeville, Connecticut, which is near where I grew up. And who, this is many, many years ago, and, and he was telling the story of how he was at a picnic, and I can't remember if, it was like a holiday picnic of some kind, I don't know if it was 4th of July, or, and he had gotten up to run an errand, and went to like the, you know, like the store to get something, and there was some group of New Yorkers who were kind of hanging out, and they invited him basically to come party with them. And they went up this mountain and he didn't come back for two months. Like he had left his family at this picnic and he just disappeared into this. And so, you know, I was interested in that for a lot of reasons. Namely, you know, I identified with it because at a certain point in my life, like that might have been something I would have done. But the fact that he had a family and that he had just left them and then he came back down the mountain and faced this family and the marriage survived apparently. And, and it just, that was a very captivating scenario. And somehow, and I was imagining into that quite a lot. And then it somehow merged with this whole story of this woman in this small town named Jackie, who had been born of this other novel. And suddenly the book became clear to me, like what it was going to be. And so that's, that's how it, that's how it started. Wow. So this is like proof that, if you don't use the pages in your novel, you can save them and maybe use them another time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like nothing should be ever wasted. Yeah, don't waste it. Start a new like Word document and who knows, it could end up as this. <laughs> yeah. And maybe it's because like I have so little free time that like anything that would exist that like could be used, I think of as like potential. So, but I, it was, it was like inert. It was like this kind of pile of like it just didn't quite, and then this other sort of random element came in and activated it and made it a story that I could lay my mind around. Wow. Well, I'm glad you didn't toss it because <laughs> it was beautiful. I mean, your writing, first of all, is just, as you know, I mean, as you must know, it's just so beautiful the way you write, the way you tell stories, the way you even like paint a picture of the room and like you can feel yourself in it and it's such a gift. It's like really awesome. And oh, obviously, you. it it goes from such extremes. I mean, in your memoir, you, you know, you're like shaking and like waiting for your crack dealer to call you and losing 40 pounds. And it's like, you know, your life is crazy. And then you go to like this elderly woman and 
like waking up in her bed with the lights streaming in. I mean, it's like all, it runs the gamut. It's amazing the way you can take the reader to all these places. I mean, I guess that's writing in and of itself, but anyway. It somehow makes sense to me, like, <laughs> but maybe not from a distance, like cracked ends of New York, you know, the country bedrooms and, you know, women waking up and pondering the morning, like, yeah, I guess they don't obviously connect, but somehow to me, they seem like there's a direct link. Well, so how did this whole writing side of your life get started? Like, when did you know you were a writer? Is this something you've always done? Was the, was Portrait of an Addict as a Young Man your first book or did you have like novels stashed away somewhere? That, no, that was, that's the first, that's the first thing I had written, you know, since college, I think. Yeah, I had, I I had kept notebooks in college and then in my early years in New York, but I, I, it was always like, I just sort of like wrote impressions of things. I've looked at some of that stuff. A lot of it is like me coming home a little bit tipsy and sort of wanting to record something that felt like very urgent or important to, to transcribe. Usually it was just like the Brooklyn Bridge and the lights of the city. It's like so cliched and so bad, but I did write. It's just, you know, I worked with writers. That's, you know, I came to New York. I started working at a literary agency. So honestly, like me writing didn't even enter a kind of a real consciousness underneath everything. I think, of course, that's like what I hoped would happen. I'd never named it to myself. It seemed beyond me. And then after I got sober, like in early, early recovery, I was writing stuff down because I thought that I would forget it. There was a lot that was sort of it hovered in this kind of like gauzy space of like, did it happen? Did I, you know, did I imagine it? And I, I wrote it all down. And some of those details were incredibly vivid. And I thought that if I just wrote it down then, that like later I'd be able to make sense of it and it would all become clear. And it didn't. I mean, not really. This is back to your saved pages writing theory again. Exactly. Like nothing is wasted. Like yeah. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> or is wasted. nothing is Or nothing is new. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, it just gets repurposed. And then like... I put those pages down and then I, I kind of like, I went back to work and after getting sober for a year and, and sort of like, you know, I had a lot of damage to clean up and a lot of relationships to mend and I had to learn how to live my life sober. And that took some time. And, and then at one point I went back to those pages and just sort of looked at them and it unlocked something. And in a pretty, I mean, now I look at that, that time period, I just started writing what had happened. And it came somewhat easily at the time. I mean, it really came out like a gusher. Like I felt like I was like catching up with it as I was typing. Then the book kind of came into being. And after I had finished it, it was sort of like, oh, I can write a book. Like it just, just takes, and I loved the experience of being alone with pages and the sentences and, and just that sort of, just the project of making a story that's here, like putting it here. And so, and now, I mean, since then, it's just become a regular part of my life. Like it's just, you know, my main job is as a literary agent. And so when I can, I write. There's always something, even if it's like several months, like between writing sessions, I'm still kind of puzzling through stuff a little bit, like kind of just in the, in the downtime. Huh. And how does it, how does your experience as a writer then affect the books that you gravitate towards or does it not at all? Like, do you pick books to publish similar to your style of writing? I mean, I saw your list and I've had some of your authors on my show and everything, but how does it relate? I think in the main, like, I think I'm more attracted to writing 
that I can't imagine myself doing, you know? And so, so it's like, I don't have, there's, there's recovery. There's, there's things that involve themes that I've explored, but in the main, it's like, these are writers who like I'm in awe of and, you know, trying to at first figure out sort of like what it is they're trying to do. And then ultimately when I get to the edge of that, trying to help them get that writing into the world. So usually the things that don't occur to me are the things that excite me the most. So there isn't that kind of overlap. And a lot of it's changed over the years too, you know, because part of it is people ask sort of like, what are you looking for? And my answer, which sounds so trite in some ways, is like, it's sort of like the thing that I didn't expect is the thing I'm looking for. You know, I mean, it's, if you've seen it or if you've, if you've read it a lot of times before, it's not necessarily the thing that you're going to be the most excited to engage in. So, yeah. I, and so th- when I go come up to this house that we now, you know, live in all the time <laughs> because of the coronavirus, but we, we used to only come up like maybe two or three weekends out of the month. I would come up for like a week and sort of pull up the drawbridge and write. But on the other end of that week, I'd be so desperate to get back to other people's writing and out of the head of my own. So just setting up those kind of like reunions with like, the job and the writing, like it's just been a nice balance for me. I kind of like, I'm always looking forward to the thing that I'm heading toward and nothing ever feels like too oppressive or too much. So even though the, the agenting takes, you know, primacy sort of in the days and the weeks, but I'm thinking about sort of what I'm writing usually and it's on the horizon somewhere, even if it's months away. And then in addition to reading for your work as an agent, do you read for fun on top of that? Or does that, I mean, you must not have time for that. Do you? It's hard. You know, it's, you know, it's really helped me with that are audiobooks. Audiobooks, and I'm, I'm kind of late to the table, I think, but I've, I've discovered them. And, and so when I work out, I listen to audiobooks. If I'm lifting weights or if I'm doing something, I, I listen to audiobooks. And so I, I have now become kind of an I mean, kind of an addict. I am an addict. And so now audiobooks are just, you know, along with like pizza and donuts, like there's audiobooks. But yeah, it's great. And I, I, I love them. And some of them are so well done. I just listened to The Dutch House, which Tom Hanks narrates. And when I first approached it, I was kind of skeptical because that felt a little too Hollywood. He's amazing. He, I mean, it's, he reads it and really delivers like a kind of a major performance in the reading. And it's, it's great. If you haven't listened to that, I recommend it. That's a great suggestion because I've been meaning to read that book and I've had it like right here for so long and that would be a great way. And I also have recently gotten into audiobooks. I feel like being out of the city, there are like, there felt like there were more opportunities like taking long walks and drives and like, I wasn't going to listen to an audiobook in a taxi or something. Although I mean, I guess I could now, but not that I'm in a taxi that often. But anyway, I'll just say... I also recommend City of Girls, Elizabeth Gilbert's... Okay. Uh, that, it's Blair Brown. Do you know who she is? Like, she was in a television show in the 80s called The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd. Oh, I remember that. Right? And then yeah. she's doing a lot of theater and stuff like that. She's one of the... She's... I mean, based on this performance alone, I think she's one of the best actresses on the planet. Like it is so, and it all depends on, it's the story of this woman's life. And it's really like the whole sweep of a life from like teenage years into her seventies, eighties, maybe. And it's epic and brilliant. It's one of the best novels ever. And the performance that she gives in the reading is, is Mesmerizing. I like also like reading also memoirs when the author narrates themselves, because then I feel like you know them even more intimately. 
Like yeah. Jody Patterson's The Bold World. She did such a good job reading that. I just oh, read wow. Jill Biden. I just had her on and she read her memoir. And I don't know. I just felt like, okay, by the time I talk to them, I've already like talked to them for eight hours or whatever it is. Yeah. I listened to Michelle Obama's. That was actually the first one that I listened to in March in quarantine. And I thought it was great. Like I was, it was just like, I looked forward to it every morning when I would go down to the basement and work out like in the cobwebs and like (laughs) (laughs) Michelle Obama, like made it possible. Who narrated your audiobooks? Do you have audiobooks? No. Yeah, I agree with you. I think having the authors like read is makes it better. In my case, I've read them and I can't say that I've made them better. Like, the, <laughs> like I'm not that good at it. And, and in fact, on the end of the day, I was supposed to read the audio of the end of the day in New York at a studio and then COVID happened and we were up here. Somehow they figured out, it's like this converted barn that's a recording studio, but mainly for like, musicians. And in fact, oh gosh, I'm going to forget his name, but there's like a pop star, Sean something, who's dating Camila Cabello. Yeah, you're going to embarrass me. I know who I should know this. Anyway, he was, he had just left after recording his new album. And then I turned up and it was literally like five minutes down the road. So I would go for like an hour and a half a day and just read a little bit. And I did it over the course of like two months. I shouldn't probably say this, but like, I don't think it was, it's the best. Uh, yeah, I did my best. <laughs> so I did my best. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure yeah. it's fine. At least you knew what you meant. Like at least the intonations are what you had in mind when you wrote it versus somebody coming into it who might misinterpret or something. Yeah. But then when you listen to somebody like Tom Hanks read like the Dutch house, it's like, it's so shaming because they really do, there is a way to really embody like the dialogue and like, and I just don't have the skill set. That's it's, his whole job. He's I know, I know. That forever. If you like, if he tried to be a literary agent for the day, he might not do a good job. You know, that's yeah, his job. Did. This is your job. So Yeah, true, true. To Moonlight. And so these glimmers of ideas that you still have, do you, are you like always writing a book? Like, are you in the middle of one now? But you just... I'm a little or, bit. Or yeah. you just look at it and look for more scraps. I feel like you should go through your, you know, junk mail and like find whatever you can. Exactly. Like, oh yeah. Like this, this like loan offer is a novel. Yeah. Possibly. No, I'm definitely working on something right now. And it's something, it's, it's going to be the sort of the third of what is sort of unofficially a kind of trilogy of these books that take place in, in the fictional town of Wells, Connecticut, which is where Did You Ever Have a Family in the End of the Day take place. And this is one that I've been sort of circling since the first one. Like there's a character that I've just sort of been, I've had in mind. And I had the title a long time ago, and but didn't have the book. And I had the character in the title, but I had no idea really what the story was going to be. And now I'm coming into it a little bit and just sort of typing toward it. So, Do you discuss your work with like some of the writers you represent or just friends or, or do you keep it all under wraps? Yeah. Like in the beginning of this, I was like, church and state. Oh, no. But there are a few who, you know, it's the thing about working in book publishing and working in literature, I think, and probably any creative field, you know, where the, the, the medium is something that matters to you a lot. You know, I'm, I represent these writers who are also big readers. And so we talk about books. We talk about like their books. It's just there's an intimacy that develops, especially with some of them over time. And with a few, like, my writings come into it kind of against my, like, 
sort of urging and, and, and certainly better judgment. But, but yeah, like a couple of them have been really good, have read stuff and even early and, and we talk about it. So some, but not that many. Can you yeah. give a little glimpse of more of what Portrait of an Addict as a Young Man was about? I know this is from a while back and it's about your life, but I thought it was just so good and I've remembered it all this time and not that it was that long. Was it 10 years ago or something? How long ago was it? 2010, it got published. Yeah, I wrote it. That was good. I didn't even research that. (laughs) Anyway, but share a little bit of your life story from that that time and and how you sort of made it through because that's like the most inspiring type of story there is, like going through the worst and coming out better for it on the other side. Well, I mean, you know, that that memoir chronicles a period of time. The foreground is a couple of months that I spent really in a free fall of crack cocaine addiction. And I had for, you know, over 10 years had an active crack addiction that I had, you know, kept secret. I was a heavy drinker. And, you know, I'm sure that there were some people in my life who thought that I was an alcoholic Nobody had confronted me about it, but I'm sure I didn't give them a lot of room to. But in terms of the the crack cocaine addiction, my boyfriend at the time knew who I lived with, but that was the only other person. And over, you know, if you know anything about addiction, particularly with crack cocaine or, you know, it, it becomes less and less manageable. And at the point that it became completely unmanageable, I just walked out the door of my life and on a, a bender that I had intended to end in death. And so... On the other side of that, I ended up in treatment. And but so I went back and because so much of that, those two months were, you know, a lot happened in that time. I think I, you know, when I was getting sober, I was trying to make sense of what had happened. And so it's a very close look at, at, at those last two months of my active addiction. But then it panels back to when I was a kid to lead up to the period of time that that two months commenced. And it's it's sort of like, how did you get here? And so, and I think I'm still puzzling through that. I'm still engaged in that. But that book is a kind of representation of like what my engagement with that sort of puzzle looked like at the time in 2008, I guess, is when I finished writing it. And I was lucky, you know, I, I, I went to treatment, I found other alcoholics and addicts in recovery, and I, I realized after relapsing a fair bit in my first year of sobriety that I couldn't stay sober without other al- alcoholics and addicts in recovery. Like I needed them very closely and actively in my life, and they are, and some of the people from that period of time in 2005 and six, when I was first getting sober, those people are still active in my life. And so, you know, I sort of let go of everything I thought I knew about how to live my life. That's really, I mean, if I'm, you know, I'm sober today, if there's a reason, it sort of connects to that. Like I had a lot of ideas about how I should live my life and how I could navigate, you know, the problems in my life. And I had to throw all that out to get sober. And so people in recovery kind of taught me how to live how to be honest, how to be accountable, how to be responsible, and how to be useful. You know, I think like growing up before that, the North Star was like, you know, 
am I going to be happy? Like that was the sort of like, how can I be happy? And I let go of that in recovery. And, and it was really like what became clear is that if, if happiness was ever going to come into it, it was because you were living a useful life. And so where the focus of self isn't the primary objective of the day, but really sort of focusing on others, which parenting is very helpful with. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's this sort of like the crisis of taking care of somebody like, immediately takes your mind off yourself. And so that's, that's also been helpful, but you know, it, there's no finish line in recovery. So it's, you know, it's been a lot of years since then, but I'm not standing on the other side of a finish line. Like it's, it's something that I have to engage with always. And happily for me, like I love the rooms of recovery. I love the people in them. I love sober al- alcoholics and addicts, their stories, their sense of humor about like, you know, the worst things and I identify with them. So that's kind of it. But, but there are people who I know who've leaned into it and, and followed a very similar path to mine who haven't gotten sober. And on some level, it's a mystery. Like, it really gets a little woo-woo for me because when I look at, like, the videotape, I'm kind of shocked that I am sober and that I, that I was able to navigate that period of time, especially in early recovery. So it, it's, some, it's somewhat of a mystery still. <laughs> Do you feel like part of the being useful is contributing your own story through your memoir and the novels that came after? I think that, you know, part of writing the books kind of felt like not a choice. I mean, it really became the sort of puzzle that I needed to see through and having it be published was a choice. And that like the only way in which it made sense was if it could be useful because, you know, it was, you've talked to a lot of memoir writers, so you know this and it's, you know, there's, you're, you're bringing in other people's stories by telling your own. And so there's a cost and there's a complication. And so it really had to be something that, and there's a discomfort too, of just like taking those parts of your life that are, you know, for a long time, the most shameful and the ones you would do a lot to keep hidden. And then you're actively putting them forward. So yeah, the, the reason to do it was to, to have it be useful. And so I think probably anybody who's written a memoir of their experience, even of experiences that aren't as dark as, as my own, when people identify with your story, like I, I still get emails and DMs and all sorts of communication about people reading those books who've identified, who say it's useful. And so that's been helpful to kind of make peace with whatever the discomforts have been for me and then and especially with the people in my life who those books have involved. Although I know we were joking before we started recording about how you know your neighbors are like yeah you know (laughs) they find out about your book and maybe they don't want to send their kids for a play date right away. (laughs) I mean I'm kidding but. It's over yeah. (laughs) It's I you know I'm surprised it doesn't I mean, to my face, I don't get much of it, but like, I, I can't imagine the conversations <laughs> that go on after they, I mean, so, but I mean, one of the things that I, I have found, which was not my experience when I was younger, is that stories like mine aren't that unique. Like, you know, it seems ultra unique as you live it. Like, it feels like terribly singular and not knowable, but addiction and alcoholism seem to cut through you know, even like the most, you know, serene looking lives. And so I find more that, you know, as I navigate the world, people who I meet confess to me more easily about what's going on in their life. And so, and it's, it, it's overwhelming how, how much it affects people. 
mean, that's so, that just hits on like the whole point of books really is that when you're going through life, these experiences all make you feel that way. And then as soon as you read someone else's or you put your own out there, you realize that you're just one, this is just part of the collective experience. And that's what's so great about it. I think that's true. There's in the literature recovery, there's, there's one phrase that really caught my attention early on, which is there's a description of, of getting sober as like, an end of isolation. Mm-hmm. And that was 100% my experience, which is going from this secret, shameful, you know, tortured existence into a community of people who had had very similar experiences and many of the feelings they would even describe in the same language that I would use, which shocked me to my bones. But also with books, I remember, you know, reading books when I was young, like, identifying with experiences and and just connecting to the world. You know, I grew up in a small town at the end of a long driveway before social media. And so books were also just a way of like seeing what was going on in the world, but also recognizing certain feelings and and circumstances. Like it just, it had this connecting effect. It, it, it ended isolation or it, it tempered it in some ways, made it more bearable. And certainly recovery was the extreme version of that for me. Yeah, like... A lot of moms use like Facebook groups as their recovery. (laughs) Uh I'm not even kidding. Like that's what I think what you're talking about with community and all that. Like I think, you know, I've never been a big like message group user type person, but so many people like that's what they need. That's what they're like hooked on and um, provides them some sort of solace for when they go back in the middle of the night and the kid won't sleep and blah, blah, blah. So. Yeah, I mean, many, all these groups. So life is hard. Like, I mean, it's like it's just. So I think when you, anytime that you can connect in any way, like even if it's not explicitly to to connect about what's hard about life, just to not feel alone in it is you know buoying, and it 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 helps you survive it. It helps you navigate it. Very true. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? This is our last question, and I've kept you for too long here. You know, just write, write, like just write and write more. Read, read a lot. Like I think reading is one of the most important things that a writer can do is in, and to do both and also write without an expectation. I think a lot of the time is, is some of the best work that I've read when I find out later from, from the author, like sort of how it came to be. A lot of it just it happens first without a shape in mind. It comes from, you know, this sort of amorphous feeling. All the writers I work with know that I, I, I quote this line from the poet W.S. Merwin, which is he wrote a poem about writing a poem. And, and he says, like, he says, any day now I'll make a knife out of this cloud. And so I think of that cloud as like the idea or the inspiration, the feeling that like something should be written down. And that the the writing is sort of is making that more specific, more purposeful, more deliberate. And sometimes it just needs to be a cloud for a while, you know, and just to like luxuriate in that and to explore that. And usually along the way, a shape or a pattern or, or a purpose emerges and then, and then you write toward that. And, but to not, I think there's so much tension that arrives at the, the blank screen and thinking that you need to know what it is exactly like before you begin and just write, just start. Like it's like analysis. Like if you're, if I don't think people are in analysis anymore, but like once upon a time people would sit for just hours, just rattling off stuff and little patterns would emerge from, from what they would say. And then meaning would be gleaned from that. And then like, and then a story gets shaped and then something really meaningful, you know, happens and shaped, but over time, it takes time. It's a writer, a sculptor. 
<laughs> Whittling it down. Amazing. Exactly. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for chatting today and for coming on my show and sharing all your experiences and, and writing all your fantastic books that have really made a big difference. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks again so much to Audible for being my sponsor. You can go to my site at audible.com slash Zibby for your free trial month of Audible. You get all their audiobooks and podcasts and uh, guided meditations and Audible originals and just so much. So go check it out. Please, please, please. Audible.com slash Zibby. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mm-hmm.